As we come to consider the Word of God this morning, the text for our message is really Genesis, uh, four chapters, verses chapter 37, and then chapter 39, 40, and 41. Now, um, just to give a little introduction here, we're not going to read all four of those chapters, but we're going to read specific points out of each of those chapters as we continue this morning in the series in which we're involved in, and that is looking at the Old Testament the way Jesus taught his apostles to look at the Old Testament. Now, what is that perspective? Well, simply this, that in all of the Old Testament, we see the unfolding of God's plan of redemption uh, and salvation for a rebellious and disobedient human race. A redemption and salvation that comes from God, that God accomplishes by His grace. We see this, first of all, announced to us in the garden, where we're told that the seed of the woman uh, will oppose the seed of the serpent, and that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And then in the covenant that God makes with Abraham, uh, God shows us that He Himself must fulfill all of the righteous requirements of that covenant on our behalf, and in the New Testament, we are told that God does this by the fact that he himself becomes the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham, the Messiah, as God incarnate, who comes into this world uh, to die for our sins under the curse of the covenant, taking that curse upon himself. So salvation is all of God. It's grounded in the work that God does as the Messiah, as the seed of Abraham, as the seed of the woman, coming to us by grace through faith. Now, all of the Old Testament story is redemptive history. It's all about God guarding and guiding all of that history, all of which he does, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with all of the Jews, to bring this redemption into the world. Now, the story of Joseph is an important part of that redemptive history story. Now, clearly, it's a very important part of the book of Genesis because the last one-fourth of the book of Genesis is actually taken up with the story of Joseph. Uh, what we see in that history is how the story of Joseph presents a, a plot line, a storyline, a thematic line that in a number of very distinctive respects parallels and actually forecasts the history of Jesus himself. For, in the story of Jesus, excuse me, in the story of Joseph, we see how the one who lives a godly and righteous life, the one who's specially favored by his father, God, or Joseph, his father, Jacob, nevertheless suffers greatly from the hand of the ungodly, how the unrighteous persecute the righteous, yet it is the one who is righteous who actually suffers for the sake of the unrighteous, all under the hand of God, who's moving history to accomplish the plan that he established in the covenant with Abraham. Because in the evil which is done to Joseph, the one who is not perfect, yet who lives a very godly life, we see how God intends for this very first instance of the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled that in Joseph 
all the nations of the earth surrounding Egypt will be blessed. Now, the importance of this. When the Messiah comes into this world, one of the things that claim, is claimed against him is that he's not received by everyone. But in fact, he's rejected by the Jews. Well, but see, in the story of Joseph, we have this treatment already established that God has already shown in the history of Israel how the unrighteous actually persecute the righteous and how the righteous is going to suffer for the unrighteous, a theme which then is at the very center of God's covenant of grace. Joseph, Jesus. Significant parallels. And we're going to look at the story of Joseph, the story which occurs in these chapters in four distinct stages, connected but distinct stages, which are going to show us a pattern that we find in the life of Christ. That is a pattern in which the righteous one will be rejected and persecuted before he is recognized and exalted. Now, this is a long story, one-fourth of the book of Genesis. So we're going to break it into two parts. We're going to look at four specific chapters today, 37, skipping 38, 39, 40, 41. Next week, we'll finish the book. But this morning, what I want us to see is that in these first four stages of the life of Joseph, we have very specific parallels to the life of Christ. And so that's what we'll do. We'll look at each one of these stages, all four of them, and then we'll conclude by looking at how Joseph's life forecasts the very history of the life and ministry of Christ himself. Now, the first stage, chapter 37. There's a theme in this chapter, uh, what sort of holds this chapter together. And the theme is this. Joseph is loved by his father, and he's loathed or hated by his brothers. So beginning in Genesis 37, I'll start reading at verse 3. Now Israel, Jacob's other name, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamental robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. <clears throat> we were binding sheaves of grain out on the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around <clears throat> and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, uh, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Then Joseph, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream, he said, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? 
his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, we'll narrate uh, the rest of what happens in Genesis 37. Jacob sends his, young, his son, Joseph, to see what's happening with the ten brothers who are minding the flocks. Now, they have found pasture uh, miles and miles away from where Jacob and the rest of the family have set their tents. What happens is that the brothers actually see Joseph coming from quite a distance away. They seize upon this as an opportunity to exercise their hatred upon him. What do they do? Well, they sell him into slavery to a Midianite caravan that's coming by, going down to Egypt. They take his special robe, they dip it in blood of a goat that they kill, and then later they're going to show it to their father, Jacob, as proof that Joseph has been killed and eaten by a wild animal. So this whole chapter presents to us, on the one hand, the fact that Jacob devotedly loves his son Joseph. And on the other hand, uh, just as intensely, uh, the older brothers hate Joseph. It's the father's love and the favoritism of that love that is the primary reason why the brothers hate Joseph. But then there's also this matter of the robe, which intensifies their understanding of this favoritism. Because this robe was not just a pretty colorful robe. In that culture, this robe is actually one that would signify royalty. It would signify a princely status. And so the fact that the father gave this robe to his 11th son signified that this son, the son of the only woman that Jacob ever truly loved, Rachel, his true love, this son he considers to be his firstborn son and to have all the rights of the firstborn. So Joseph is getting precedence over Ten older brothers, which, of course, is contrary to the culture, which only intensifies their hatred of Joseph because it makes them feel like that they are demoted in status and somehow less legitimate than Joseph himself. The other factor, of course, happens to be the dreams that Joseph is having. They clearly symbolize that the brothers are going to bow down before him which makes them detest him even more. Now, just as an aside, most commentators say that as wonderful as Joseph is going to turn out to be as a human being, uh, at this stage as a teenager, 17 years of age, he's just a little bit naive about telling his brothers these dreams because he doesn't really bridge, build any bridges toward them but he causes the chasm between them to get even deeper and greater. Now, what comes of this? Well, what comes of all this is the evil that the brothers perpetrate against him. They are, in fact, in their hatred at a level of murderous intent. They're willing to kill him, but in the providence of God, not all of them are willing to kill him. And so the negotiated solution to this is selling him into slavery with the Midianites, who actually are Ishmaelites in terms of their background, selling into slavery down into Egypt. 
And then they perpetrate this incredibly awful deception upon their father, Jacob. Oh, by the way, who himself was once a deceiver, who had been deceived by his uncle, now deceived by his sons. Into believing that his beloved son has been lost to him. Now, I want you to think how true to life all of this is in terms of these human dynamics and conflicts that we see going on. You think about what the Apostle Paul said 1,800 years later in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, toward the end of chapter 1, Paul gives a litany of the most vicious kinds of ways in which people can be awful to one another. They, they really describe the brothers. He says, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, inventors of evil, disobedient, you can put dishonoring to parents, heartless, ruthless. Now the point is, human beings are still like this. Oh, did you notice all those things we just read? Aren't they the plot lines of the most awful kinds of TV shows and movies that you see these days? I mean, if, if you didn't have these things going on, you wouldn't have 90% of what you see on Netflix, right? Human nature has not changed in thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And in this case, in Joseph's case, we see one of the universal themes in human history that the unrighteous will, in fact, wind up persecuting the righteous, the ungodly attacking those who seek to be godly, immorality pressing hard against those who want to live a moral and decent life. Now, meanwhile, down in Egypt, Joseph is sold to Potiphar. He's an officer of Pharaoh's royal guard, He's basically brought in to be a household slave. So chapter 39, we're going to see this particular theme worked out, that although it is by the hand of God that Joseph in this position flourishes, nevertheless, he's going to be framed and falsely accused. So Genesis 39, beginning at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So Joseph is now flourishing. He's in essence become the, the chief steward of Potiphar over all of his household. Everything he does, God blesses him, and therefore he's a tremendous blessing to Potiphar. But in the context of this, there is a spiritual war that's being waged against the plan of God and the man right now who's the chief person of God, even Joseph himself. So we drop down to the second half of verse 6, and we read, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now, that's a Hollywood statement if you ever read one, right? Uh, that's an American cultural ideal if you ever saw one. 
No, it's actually been true throughout human history that what has been highly regarded has been that wonderful good looks and physical appearance uh, we haven't changed in thousands of years. Putting so much upon that which is finite, temporal, and which never really ultimately lasts. Now, Joseph, well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to me, to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Now one day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. Parenthetical note. How convenient. How unusual. How clearly not the normal pattern. How clearly something contrived and set up. If you're reading this carefully, Moses doesn't have to supply you with that little sideline. You can see it. None of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, He left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So Joseph has this great season of flourishing But what we also see is that God is actually setting all of this up to test his character by allowing this season of temptation. Now, Joseph passes the test. Potiphar's wife repeatedly attempts to seduce Joseph. But just as often, Joseph not only refuses, but he preaches to her. Verse 9, how then can I do this great sin, this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice he's appealing to the highest moral and spiritual principle that one can ever appeal to. It makes no impression upon Potiphar's wife. So what happens? Well, we see another theme that illustrates human character, another universal kind of theme, because she, the woman, is rejected 
her infatuation turns to fury. How do we say this? Uh, The place below has no fury like a woman scorned. And so she accuses Joseph of attempted rape. Now I want you to think about how up to date, how 21st century all of this is. What themes, universal themes we find here. Marital infidelity. A woman seductress. What's implied, toxic masculinity. That is men taking advantage of women. But what is not a universal theme that shows up in the story is this. Not a universal theme. A man being godly. A man resisting temptation. A man who never gives in. That's rare. In fact, if you think of the previous stories, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, if you know these stories, you know that in all of these stories connected with the patriarchs, there is no man like Joseph. He is rare. He does not participate in that almost universal theme of men taking advantage of women. But that's why Potiphar's wife's very sketchy story gets traction. Who's Potiphar going to believe? He believes his wife. Even though I think he can actually see through her story. Because according to Egyptian custom at that time, Joseph should not have been put in prison. Joseph could have been apprehended and summarily killed on the spot. Potiphar exercises, under the providence of God, a mercy in sparing Joseph's life. Now there's a spiritual lesson that we need to appreciate in all of this story. And that is, doing what is right is very often very costly. And sometimes it brings more trouble into our lives than what we already were experiencing. And then the new temptation that faces us is to somehow give up and to think, that God is no longer with us. I don't get it, God. I, I, I did the right thing, and I lost my job. Lord, I did the right thing, and members of my family turned against me. I, I did the right thing, and my reputation is now shattered. but we don't see the big picture of what God is doing. Joseph in prison doesn't yet see the big picture of what God is doing, but God is at work. And so we come to the third stage in Joseph's life. 
chapter 40. Now the theme here, once again, Joseph, by the grace and work of God, is a faithful, faithful man, but he gets forgotten. At a critical point, he gets forgotten. So in prison, Moses is going to tell us that God is with Joseph, and Joseph becomes the keeper of the prison because he gains great favor with the man who's the warden of the prison. And in a relatively short time, Joseph has responsibility for all of the prisoners in the prison. Now time passes. Two new prisoners prisoners are incarcerated. Very significant personages. One is the chief cupbearer to the king. The other is the chief baker for the king. They've offended the king. Now they're incarcerated. Joseph has responsibility for them. Time passes. Then, three days before the king is supposed to celebrate his birthday, both of these men have dreams that night. But they can't interpret the dream. So Genesis 40, verse 6, When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So first the the chief cupbearer tells his dream, and God gives Joseph a favorable interpretation. The chief cupbearer is going to be restored in three days to his position. But then Joseph says to him, verse 14, But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Then the chief baker tells his dream. But it means that in three days he's going to be executed. It all happens exactly as Joseph has said. But then chapter 40 closes on this sad note. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Just imagine how Joseph was feeling. He's 28 years old, 11 years now, from the time he was sold into slavery to this day. Eleven years where he has seen at times a a, a great success under the hand of God, but that success has turned upon a dime and it's plummeted down even further. He has seen ups and downs in his walk with God. His integrity and character have been tested time and time again. As you read his story, most of us would say, um, how in the world would I have handled all of this? How in the world would I have still believed that God was with me when on the one hand I would feel tremendous experiences of God working through me, such as flourishing all of Potiphar's um, uh, wealth, and then getting falsely accused by his wife, and then taking care of all these prisoners and and being God's channel for giving prophetic revelations to two of Pharaoh's chief officers and then getting forgotten. 
it might seem to Joseph that God has also forgotten him. But God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. Two years go by. We come to the fourth stage. In this, the theme is Joseph is finally remembered and then he's raised up to be the ruler. Chapter 41, first eight verses. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the river and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again, had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. So it's at that point, though, that the chief cupbearer remembers that he has forgotten Joseph. And he tells Pharaoh this. So the king sends for Joseph. Uh, Joseph is then properly bathed and shaved and dressed. And he comes in before Pharaoh, verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answers Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So then Joseph gives to Pharaoh what God gives to him. He says, the two dreams have the same message. There's going to be seven years of great abundance and followed by seven years of famine and scarcity. And because of the interpretation that Joseph gives and also the advice on how to handle all of this that's going to happen, the great abundance and then the famine over the next 14 years, the king exalts Joseph to be the second in command after himself over all of Egypt. What Joseph is given to do, he carries out with the fullest success. The storehouses for the grain during the first seven years overflow with abundance. Joseph stops keeping records. It's so abundant. Plenty of grain for the seven years of impending famine. And so we come to the end of verse chapter 41, verse 57, 58, where we read, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in the world. Now here's the pinnacle of God's blessing upon Joseph. Because of God's working through Joseph, this seed of Abraham is being a blessing to all of the nations that surround 
Egypt. Now, the storyline of Joseph sets a pattern that also forecasts the history of Christ. The one the father loves is rejected by his brothers. The righteous one suffers at the hands of the unrighteous. The righteous one actually suffers in the place of the unrighteous ones in order that in the righteous one all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, many people who have loved the Bible and loved Jesus have seen all of the parallels and connections between the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus Christ. They've noted the many parallels between them. I want you to consider ten things that are quite specific. First, Joseph is the father's beloved son. Christ is the father's beloved son. Secondly, Joseph is hated by his brothers. Christ, likewise, comes to his own, but his own receive him not. Thirdly, Joseph is envied by his brothers. Jesus was likewise envied by the leaders of the Jewish nation. Fourthly, Joseph's brothers conspired against him. We read in the book of Mark how the Pharisees and the Herodians conspired together against Jesus to kill him. Fifthly, the brothers strip off Joseph's robe. The Romans stripped off the robe of Christ. Sixth, the brothers sold Joseph into servitude as a slave. Jesus willingly took upon himself the form of a bondservant. Seventh, Joseph, having done no wrong, was falsely accused. Jesus, having committed no sin, was falsely condemned. Eighth, as the great Lutheran scholar H.C. Leupold has written, for as Joseph, a righteous man, is made to suffer for righteousness' sake, but finally triumphs over all iniquity, so the truly righteous one, the Savior of man, experiences the same things in a heightened degree. Ninth, after so much suffering, Joseph is finally exalted over all, given such a great name in all of Egypt. Christ, after his suffering, is ultimately exalted to the right hand of God and given that name that is above every other name. Tenth, to Joseph, all of Egypt and all of the surrounding nations come to be saved from earthly destruction. And so in Jesus, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And so this morning, we come to the Lord's table. We see in the brothers of Jesus a mirror of human depravity and even a mirror of our own sins. But in what the table presents, preaching to us the gospel of Christ, we see one who's far greater than Joseph, the very Son of God, the Righteous One, who offered up his body and who shed his blood that we might be saved. So, let's pray. Father, in the story of Joseph, let us never forget the greater story of redemption of all that you've done for us in Christ. And so we pray 
Lord, teach us again that you are the God of salvation, the God who is with us, the God who has given your utmost, even your Son, for our own highest good. In Jesus' name.